big sound in a small town Far away from the big city lights Making music every night Good music with all our friends Tell everybody, tell your mama and them We're going out and we're getting down A big sound in a small town 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 Welcome to season four of Big Sound Small Town. I'm your host, Sandy Carlton. Join me as musicians tell their stories about how they became musicians and the stories along the way. So uh, this is a tune called This Old House. And yeah, I'm aware that it's, <laughs> it's a, a well-used title whether it's for TV shows or, or <laughs> books or what have you. But um, I was actually doing a photo shoot with two very young, charming women um, out in the countryside of Nashville. And um, they were off conversing, looking at the camera and what they'd taken so far. And we had snuck onto this property uh, to sit on the front porch of this house with a big old no trespassing sign right over my shoulder. And so I'm sitting around, I'm waiting for them. They've been talking for 10 minutes. And at this point, I'm thinking, well... <laughs> For all I know, they're talking about their wardrobe or what shoes they bought this weekend. I don't know. Boy, that sounds so sexist. At any rate, I thought, ah, you know what? I had this guitar sitting there, so I just started noodling around playing this old house. I'm sitting on this dilapidated old house, and I, I couldn't really relate to the, the song much. It took me a while to write it because I'd never had a house that was torn down before that I'd lived in. And then um, I was driving around Music Row, where they were tearing down one house after another that mm -hmm. I had had offices in, sure. recording studios, this, all of Music Row. This was the charm of Music Row, and they were tearing it down and putting right. up these ridiculously, uh, you know, clones of the condos down the street. So mm -hmm. then I had something to hang this song on, and it goes like this. It's called This Old House. It's kind of a story about how... Uh, my early years in Nashville and how things would change. Well, this old house, it's where my story first begins. I got the word that progress was closing in. There's a beat up bulldozer revving up in the drive. Strange to think this will be our final goodbye. 
It's a shame to see the old girl going out this way So far removed from her glory days The vines have grown twisted across the front gate A homeless scene behind the nature's crying tape This old house will always be a part of me you can holler away in the heart Should remain I'm leaving here With Polaroids and forgotten dreams I grew like a pair of worn down jeans Peering down the front hall Behind these kicked in doors Dust and rain have done a number on these hardwood floors. Some local kids have been camping out here and partying late. We used to do the same thing too at that age. Watch the cars whizzing by out on the new interstate. Now some would call that progress and some would call it fate. I remember kissing Kate any chance on that front porch swing. I heard she lost a battle back in the early spring. Still, it's gonna be alright. I can call her to mind any old time. Hi, good morning. I'm Wyatt Easterling. I'm a uh, native North Carolinian who uh, went from Chapel Hill, North Carolina back in the 80s to Nashville, Tennessee, where I spent 35 years working in the industry there. Uh, I have since moved back to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I've been back home for about, gosh, nine years now. It's hard really? Not that, that fast. I thought I'd be home here because uh, Nashville is still home. Yeah, thirty-five. Years, yeah, thirty-five so. years kind of makes it home. Yeah, it does, and and my you know all my friends and family and all my songwriting collaborators, uh, most of those guys are out there in, in Nashville. My son, my twin brother, still lives out there. No, oh. um, many reasons to to uh, call Nashville home, but here I am in North Carolina and. Uh, Chapel Hill changed much since you grew oh up God. there. <laughs> well, you know, when I got back there, I had not spent a whole lot of time there. I'd right. fly in and go see my parents and yeah. fly out. But um, I didn't realize, uh, you know, where uh, Carver was actually the place to live now, which is yeah. conjoins Chapel Hill. And sure. When I was growing up, that was kind of the mill side of town. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 
there were houses, but they were all uh, part of the mill. Oh yeah. Now those mill houses are like oh eight hundred thousand dollars. Sure so they are. Crazy. Yeah, it's, it is a housing industry now is crazy. I, is. I've known people who just recently moved from Nashville to North Carolina and were able to um, uh, buy a house and land and more stuff than they could after, after they oh, sold gosh. their house in Nashville. Well, it's so funny that um, Nashville's become such a hot spot because when I was there for, gosh, decades, people were moving from Los Angeles. Sure. Which I don't blame them. Oh, well, I, don't I like them. Los Angeles, but I don't want to live there. I just it's a actually, great place to visit, but yeah, I wouldn't want to live do there. Do some work there and come yeah. home. Yeah. Um, but they were moving to Nashville and you know, selling property houses in, in the California market. Uh, market. Yeah. Yeah. And then coming back to Nashville and, and buying, you know, 500 acre farms. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Got with cash. Yeah, with cash. So. Um, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I got to Nashville. I actually. My uh, my journey, if you will. Yeah. Um, I was in, I believe it was eighth grade, and right after lunch, a good friend of mine came over and said, "Hey, you've got to meet this fellow who just moved here from Nashville, Tennessee. He's uh, moved back with his mom. His name's John Laddermilk, and um, you, you guys have got to meet each other. You know, because obviously I was into music even back then. Well, I met John, and we became fast friends and almost immediately we were uh, inseparable and the two of us eventually moved to Nashville and he was on his way to make a uh, or to build a recording studio and I tagged along because I wanted to be in Nashville sure and uh, and I was I was thinking okay I'd known I wanted to be in the music business my entire life since the time I was I don't know, seven or eight uh, I loved to sing and um, just wanted to be in that business yeah Showbiz. Yeah. I'd spent a little bit of time uh, with my family in, in Los Angeles at a time when so many of the artists, uh, or excuse me, the actors, yeah. were coming along. So I, I remember seeing people like Bob Denver, who was Gilligan. Yeah, Gilligan. Uh, in the grocery store. Yeah. And then seeing him on TV in the afternoon. And uh, on and on with so many different stars. And uh, uh, Ernest Borgnine was yeah. my Sunday school teacher. Oh, that's good. And he would come in every uh, Sunday. Hey, kids. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I just remember that, you know, and I was only like six. But um, I thought even back then, I thought, well, you know, this is an option. Yeah. Going to entertainment. Could you play music already by then? No. I mean, I was forced March to do, you know, the right. piano lessons. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, sure. Um, but at an early age, I wanted to play the guitar. And um, actually, my father, who was in uh, medicine, was... Uh, asked to come back to the University of North Carolina Medical School by Ike Taylor, whose son was James Taylor, yeah. and Kate and Hugh and Alex yeah. and the whole clan. So uh, having that kind of influence that close by, not that I knew James, but right. Livingston and I have been friends you know, ever since we were kids. But, um, you know, it's a pretty good road. Yeah, to I'd say it is. So, um, I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Well, and I, I think, too, uh, Let's go back to your your friend and let's kind of give his father's background too. Well, absolutely. And his father, uh, John Laddermilk, uh, I guess it would have been senior. Senior, perhaps. I guess. Or yeah. junior. No, it would have been junior. Junior. Because my uh, uh, friend John was uh, the third. The third. So. Um, but he uh, was from North uh, Durham, from Durham, right. North Carolina, and he uh, uh, wrote such songs as Abilene. Yeah, he did. Um, 
a rose and a babe ruth yeah uh a tobacco road yeah he did yeah. which was a big 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 uh, big rock rock hit yes it was um then you can tell me goodbye and just hit after hit after yeah. hit uh, warm and and warm and windy yeah which is an amazing uh instrumental that uh that uh chet atkins recorded sure uh, became mm-hmm. very famous. I've heard, yeah, and actually, no, I mean, heard. these were big songs long before I was right. know, able to, to, you know, point my finger at it and say that's a, a great song. Right. But, um, uh, so that was the heritage that I was able to slide into Nashville. Nashville with, and yeah. So I didn't think it was anything spectacular to be sitting at Chet Atkins' house in his living room one Sunday afternoon when I was about. 16, 17. That's great. With uh, John, and we were playing guitars for Chet. I was just learning. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget. I still have this guitar. It was a, it was a Guild um, D27. And um, I, Chet said, well, boys, play me something. And John was just a natural anyway. And so he played these very intricate uh, little instrumentals. And... Um, it was my turn. I could barely bar chord. <laughs> I remember John saying, well, he's just taking it up. And Chet says, well, here, let me see that guitar. And just, and I went, wow. Maybe some of that will oh, stick. Off some magic. Right on the neck. Some magic rubbed on it, maybe. Uh, it was a, it was a fun, uh, fun way to come into Nashville. But So I was able to spend weekends uh, when John and I moved there. Uh, we moved there in 81. But we would on weekends go out to the Grand Ole Opry, yeah, and watch from the back, you know, the stage and, sure. and the pews along the back end. Um, I just thought, well, yeah, welcome to Nashville. I didn't right. think it was extraordinary at the time. I right. just thought, well, why not? Yeah. Um, and then it was time for me to to make my own way. Right. And I learned that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You may you may go visit Chet at his house, but when he's in his office. Different Their protocols. You got to earn your way in there, which is good. Everybody yeah, it should. is. Otherwise, yeah, sure. you're wasting your time in there. So, uh, but I, I um, uh, was w- arrived there with with an album, and um, I shopped it all over town, and and no, yeah, yeah. it's probably okay. I mean, my friends growing up, they all loved it because it you know reminds them of that age, but. Um, <clears throat> I cringe to listen to it now. <laughs> oh, I, I cringe to listen to most of my stuff. Uh, so. um, but I, I started making my way and, and reached a point where I was about to sign with CBS Records. And Sony came along and bought them. Yeah. And so everyone was out. Sure. I'd been working on that deal for two years. <laughs> yeah, that's about I right. Just, I was so crestfallen. Rick Blackburn had been running CBS, and he invited me because, um, of course, he was uh, – given his severance and, and right. had a two-year non-compete in the record world. So he decided he was going to open up a publishing company yeah. and invited me to come write for him, which I did. Um, I don't think he paid us anything, but yeah, we were, yeah. you know, we had, uh, oh gosh, maybe 10, 15 writers there. And these people became close friends, right. um, collaborators. Yeah. Uh, I wrote songs. Uh, with these guys, and they all went on to write songs that got recorded and, and uh, some hits. And um, you learned your craft. Time. You learned your craft. I there, did. You know what? I didn't know how to write a song right. until I got there. I mean, and it's different, <clears throat> particularly in Nashville, say than uh, 
most people, I got a good idea for a song. I want to sit down and write today. But that's a day. It's almost a uh, craft. Well, it is a craft in Nashville. It is. You know, but it's a craft. It's yeah. not. It's not a job. No. Nope. It's a craft. It's a and craft. And if you treat it as such, you'll get better and better. True. True. And um, these days, it, if I need to write something, because I don't write like I did then. Yeah, of course day, not. Yeah. And it probably takes me a day or two to get back into the the flow. Yeah. Well. Um, so, well, so Sony purchased CBS and, um, all deals were off the, I think they kept Johnny Cash. Of course. And, um, maybe Waylon was on there at the yeah. time. I think maybe they kept Waylon. Um, but at any rate, um, I started writing for this, this company called Venture Harbor, which was owned by Rick Blackburn and a fellow named, uh, Blake Nevis, whom we just lost this past spring. Hard to believe that all of these guys are gone now. But um, so I learned to write with these guys because I would write a song, all right. come in and play it for Blake, especially, who was a great songwriter and record producer. He uh, did all of the early George Strait. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, oh, I'm blanking. Um, Keith. Whitley, Keith Whitley. Keith Whitley. He, I see he's getting ready to be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, just finally. I know. I, yeah. And that should have been done. That's a no-brainer, it no seemed kidding. to me. No kidding. So at any rate, he, uh, Blake had a great ear. So you'd bring a song in, and he could he would help you fix it and show you where you had gone left or right with it. And, and uh, just a huge lesson. Yeah. Um, and more than anything, we were just grabbing any opportunity to write. Right. Um, you know, you didn't need to be prompted at that point. Um, so I'm, I'm with Venture Harbor. I'm writing better and better when along comes Atlantic Records and they want to open up shop because suddenly sure. we're selling a bunch of records in Nashville. Yeah, Nashville's and the, the place. Yeah. It's become the place. And we were about to enter into the golden era, um, you know, of modern country, I would sure. say, because I think they're have been more than one golden eras there. Um, so I, I heard about this on, on the, the street, and I went to Rick and said, hey, I hear uh, you're going to be up in Atlantic Records, and I love Atlantic Records. What an amazing record label. They're so musical, and, and you know, the integrity of, of all of the product they put out. Right. <laughs> I remember Rick had his half glasses on, and you know, uh, probably a cigarette in his hand, and he's looking down, signing something on his paper, and says, "Yeah, I want you to head up the A and R department." <laughs> was like, what? He's like, "Wah wah wah," you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> and and I and I, I, I was flattered, but I was, I was, you know, I mean, all of those years of preparation to be an artist, I was thinking, okay, a bird in hand, two in the bush, yeah. Um, and Chet Atkins, one of my heroes, was an A&R man. And, and uh, uh, I had gotten to know some of the others in town, and I had a lot of respect for him. But more than anything, I loved the studio. Right. I thought, hmm. Production had been a, a you know, strong pull for me, and I really still to this day enjoy doing it. And uh, so I, I said, give me a day or so to talk, think about it. And, and uh, called him back the next morning and said, I'm in. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see where that's a struggle. I've worked this hard to be an artist, 
I'm probably pretty close. Mm. Well, I was. But, I was but, getting better and better. Right. But then, you know, do I, do I go to the other side? <laughs> well, you know, and that was the funny thing because I, I was just one of uh, thousands of songwriters on Music Row that actually yeah. had opportunities to write for a company. Um, and to suddenly be plucked from obscurity. Yeah. Everybody in town assumed that I was from the West Coast. I don't know why. I mean, I've got a pretty thick Southern accent. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I took to the job well because I built a recording studio in Chapel Hill with Steve Graubach. It was his studio, but I was trading out time to do my own album. And then um, meeting John and going to town there and building a studio and then doing all the studio work there right. uh, to uh, writing for this publishing house. You know, I, I had a pretty good ear and eye for A&R. Right. Um, so I, I managed to, my first signing was John Michael Montgomery. Huh. And uh, um, I was given permission to produce his first album, Life's a Dance, and I yeah. did that in conjunction with, I did half the album and uh, then Doug Johnson did the other half. Um, consequently, I had a song that I'd written that John loved, and he recorded it. It was called Life's So Funny. Yeah. And when Doug brought in Life's a Dance, there was no question. Mine was a ballad, and this one's a mid-up. And uh, it was the right choice, no question. And eventually, uh, Joe Diffie recorded that. Actually, Tim McGraw first recorded it, but he couldn't sing it when he got in the studio. <laughs> and then Joe came along and recorded it, and Joe could sing uh, the phone book. Yeah, uh, Joe God could. rest his soul. Um, so that was, a one, that was a marvelous song to get cut. But um, So at any rate, I, I uh, suddenly had this profile, unexpected, that you know, I was somebody. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, that's a pretty good first signing, I'd have to say. Yeah, it was. And then, uh, well, you know what's interesting? I had to beat that town up. Um, I had to, to push hard with the record label that I was, you know, I was running A and R, so it was my choice. Right. But I then had to sell him to the, you know, well, to probably every the artist, world, you know, and they were like, "What?" And I'm thinking, "Are you kidding me?" He's got the name John Michael Montgomery. He's got the look. Yeah. I mean, that's real. That's the real right. deal. He's got the voice. I mean, and the guy's handsome. Yeah. He's a handsome sure. dude. So I don't know what the pushback was, but um, once I started showing up to the office with some tracks under our belt. But I worked with John for about two years before we went in and recorded. Um, so uh, there's always that sure. developmental period of time. Um, but, um, yeah, so that, that was a fun first signing. And uh, and nice guy. His, his, um, his drummer at the time was Eddie Montgomery, who, uh, of course, had Montgomery Gentry. Right, yes. And, uh, but he came to me. I said, what? You know, I ain't worth a shit as a drummer, but I'd like to be John's merch manager on the road. What do you think? I said, well, it's not up to me, but I think it would be a good idea. You, you know, keep an eye on your brother's back, and yeah, he said, "Yeah, I just want to learn the business." And boy, did he! Yes, you know, he went on to do some great things. Sure. Um, so, but after John Michael, I, I brought in uh, um, Neil McCoy. Yeah, no, yeah, and then, yeah. these were easy. I mean, they you know, you get presented with artists all day long. I mean, hundreds sure come through your door, um, 
but it's the ones that somebody calls you and says, you need to check this one out. Uh, and Charlie Pride called the label, talked to Rick Blackburn, and said, you got to come down here and see this guy. Um, Neil McCoy was his name then. And so uh, uh, we flew down to Meridian, Mississippi for Jimmy Rogers Mule Day. <laughs> and yeah. they had um, this beautiful old theater, a grand dame, just gorgeous, and uh, with the, you know, the, the wood balcony and... And um, I mean, it was like the, it was like the Ryman on steroids. It was almost—I think I was on the very third tier or something. Wow! Like that. It was a beautiful theater. Um, and uh, Neil was opening for Charlie Pride, and he came out, and I watched—oh gosh, just two minutes—and yeah. I knew he's the deal, uh, just from the way he was handling the audience. And then when he started singing, I was like, ah, no brainer. However. Neil's uh, mom, I think, is um, Filipino, so he had a very ethnic look. Right. And at the time, this is country music. Right. Um, you're gonna struggle with it. Sure. It was kind of it was it was hard to uh, um, convince people that the color of somebody's skin doesn't matter. Right. You know, and you yeah. think with Charlie Pride, you would think that would have made it easier. Yeah. Um, you know, chilled out on that, but people are funny animals. They are. Um, so. Um, we signed Neil and broke him on the road, and kind of like Charlie, you know, people slowly but surely began to realize that he was he was he was American. I mean, his dad right. was a serviceman. Sure, you know, he was American. It's not like he wasn't. But so uh, crazy times back then. Uh, and and Neil went on to have a great career. Yeah. I didn't produce him. I, I um actually I did mix some of those early records, and he recorded a song of mine. Um, he heard me noodling around in my office uh, one afternoon. And he came in and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm playing a song I wrote a couple of days ago. And um, it was, this time I'm taking my time. And it was a kind of a reggae little feel. And he loved it. And this time I'm taking my time. I need to work that one out. <laughs> I haven't played that one in years. but um, So that was fun. Uh, Tracy Lawrence was another animal that, um, or another artist, excuse me for calling him an animal. <laughs> um, I signed him because I'd seen him play up in Kentucky. I knew he was a star, and he and I didn't really get along, but um, I knew he was a star. Yeah. That was my job. Yeah, exactly. You don't exactly have to like everyone to, nope. to that you mm-hmm. sign. And there's some artists out there that have amazing careers, and they are just amazing people, and sweet as can be, and there are those out there that have are. amazing career, careers, and they're the biggest jerks in the world. They are. Uh, and I keep thinking, why? You've got the... Got the, you know, <laughs> talking by the tail and and you know whatever. I, I suspect I always think along the lines that that perhaps the stress of their position keeps them anxious all the time. It could. I mean, it, it is a hard life. I mean, as you well know. I guess I don't know. I mean, I get up. I drove down here this morning from Chapel Hill. Yeah. Three hours and I'm at beautiful Shelby. It's a stunning little town. It is a stunning little town. Um, Great little place. Well, so I'll migrate my story. Um, I uh, left Atlantic Records. I uh, had a, a little um, change of, of my philosophy on, on what I wanted to do with music. And I wanted to work with writers. And I wanted to go back to songwriting. And you cannot do both. When nah, I would see that you couldn't. I mean, I would see that that would just... Take yeah. up your time, your well, creativity. It, it, by the time you get home, you don't want to listen to music. You don't want to hear music. You've listened to True. it all day long. And, and I loved it as much as I did. I just 
Oh, I do understand that. Um, then, uh, um, and then you start worrying about whether you've gotten somebody's idea in the back of your head and don't remember it. And I, the last thing I would want to do True. ever to be uh, would, to plagiarize somebody. So at any rate, but I wanted to get back to songwriting. So I, I um, uh, in my departure from Atlantic, and before I could take even go around and, and meet with publishers, I got a call from this fellow named Miles Copeland. <laughs> now the name was vaguely familiar, but I didn't know why. And uh, um, so he told me that uh, Kai Fleming, who was a huge songwriter, had suggested he contact me and he wanted to open up a publishing company. And I'm thinking, huh, well, one of the things I love to do yeah. is to create an environment where I can turn around and go to a friend of mine who I know deserves a deal and say, hey, right. dude, I, I got Captain's Choice. Sure. I get to pick you to come write for me. Yeah. And um, so Miles and I uh, uh, met. I flew out to L.A. and we met one afternoon, and I told him what I wanted to do, which was to... Uh, bring in some songwriters, bring in production mm-hmm. and management. And I said, this is perfect. It's Trivecta. You've got the management. I do production and mm. write. And, um, and I told him, I said, I, I'm going to still write. I'm not going to not write. But, right. um, and basically, Miles has said, I don't give a fuck what you do. So long right. Long long long. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, and I didn't know that much about it. I really didn't know anything about it. However, my brother-in-law, I had just gotten married a few months before, uh, to a, a uh, music family in Nashville. Johnny Slate <laughs> was uh, my father-in-law. Um, I don't want to get off track because when I first moved to town, I didn't like him. <laughs> he would, um, I'd, I'd be at a bar in, in uh, um, what was that called? Uh, Third Coast. And there was a bar that we all went to at the watering hole after work. And um, he would come in there, and he was just this tall handsome movie star looks guy and he was so arrogant i just didn't like him and then he had his sidekick was which was his first cousin danny danny morrison who was so funny anytime johnny did something that was pushing the edge danny would create you know some humor involved <laughs> but at any rate um why did i get off on johnny we were talking about um oh so um so miles we've got this uh uh, we have this uh, publishing company, and we, we decided to um, to go f- move forward in our deal. And uh, he flies in from L.A. I barely know this guy. And um, oh, you're gonna have to edit here. Okay. I remember what I was gonna say. Um, my brother-in-law, Stephen Slate, was a huge IRS Records fan. Okay. Yeah. And so I got started getting lessons after the fact, after I'd already made the deal with Miles. And um, so I was, I was uh, armed with this information when Miles pops in. I mean, we've been partners for maybe a month. And he pops in to Nashville and says, hey, I'm going to drop by. He calls me the night before. He says, I'm, I'm going to come through for the day on my way over to uh, London. I thought, oh, okay. And I don't know this guy well. I just know, his, you know some of his history that he's reputed to be you know, one of the biggest, baddest yeah. artist managers in LA and he had the police yeah he did and uh he owned Iris Records and I thought well I like this guy you know he's he's a doer he ha- he dreams big and goes after it so uh, anyway he's pacing back and forth in front of my desk he shows up 
you know, just this this guy looks just like Andy Warhol. And, um, <laughs> he's always in a blazer and gray slacks and a white shirt. That's just his uniform. Right, it's a uniform. And I think that's all he travels with, that and a toothbrush. So um, he's pacing back and forth in front of my brand-new publishing desk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, who is this guy? And... Um, he looks at me and says, all right, now we got these writers. What the fuck are we going to do with them? <laughs> and I was kind of caught, not really flat-footed, but I, I just said, well, I was thinking we should do a, a songwriter's retreat. He looks at me, and he's still pacing back and forth. He stops, and he goes, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and I said, I said, well, you've got Irish records. You've got the Bengals, the Go-Go's. You've got Timbuk3, you've got all of these artists. Right. Surely they've got to have songs for their records. We've got songwriters. Bring them here. We'll put them up in a state park right. down south of, of, of uh, Nashville. There's one down there. We could put them in cabins, and they can write all weekend, whatever. They'll get yeah. fed there. And, and uh, he's still pacing back and forth, and then he stops and looks at me and goes, This is perfect. <laughs> I've got a chateau in the south of France. We'll do it there. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, I'm just watching this guy, and I'm going, I have definitely <laughs> stepped into a different league. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's nobody yeah. I'm working with in Nashville that's got a chateau in the south of France. That's funny. Uh, not until years later when I had worked with Keith Urban, and he ended up, because of the chateau in France, he and Nicole bought a uh, chateau over there. I don't know if they still have it. But um, within two months, now the, the company's officially been open a month, and with another two months later, I find myself in the south of France at his chateau, which is a castle. I mean, when he was pacing back and forth, and he says, a chateau in the south of France. And I said, that's like a castle, isn't it? He looks at me and goes, well, of course it is. It's a chateau. I'm going, God, don't sound like a bumpkin, man. So, so how many songwriters did you take over there? Uh, ultimately, I would take all of mine. Oh, oh, oh you took, oh, okay. So I would, that I would was, take my artist over there, right. my songwriters over there. And... Um, I would uh, have them, you know, we would bring in artists, and eventually it became very open. We would take on partners for the event because we did it twice a year, and it's quite uh, expensive getting everyone over. Sure, I'm sure it was, and, yeah. Um, but it was amazing. Uh, I'm sure. From the very first uh, event, I had Doug Millett and um, who else did I have in there? Michael Garvin. Uh, these are, were all, you know, established writers. Um, Rich Wayland. And, and and we also brought um, uh, Pam Rose and, and um, oh, Kennedy, what was her first name? Oh, yeah. Um, Kennedy Rose. Yeah. Oh, I can't think of her first name. I can't think of her first um, name. And then uh, Kai Fleming, of course. Yeah. And then uh, um, some other writers that, uh, that I had signed to the company. And our first uh, time, we had uh, Glenn, Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Gifford, yeah from Squeeze, and we had Brenda Russell, and we had uh, Bonnie Hayes, and it was just astounding. I'm just looking and thinking, really, honestly, I was just covering my ass. Because Miles says, what the fuck are we going to do with these writers? And I thought, uh, 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 um. That's funny. And, you know, but I think it was the first of its kind. I know it was the first of the kind that we, what we did. We yeah. brought artists and, and writers together for a publishing standpoint. and But from that spawned all of these writer retreats and I still do mine I do songtravelers.com as a matter of fact I'm, I'm holding a uh, uh, retreat this October 3rd through the 7th up in Maryland and I've got um, Abigail Dowd 
and Jess Klein will be my co-instructors. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be a really good event. But uh, you can find that at songwriters.com. Uh, excuse me, songtravelers.com. Okay, we'll promote that on the show. So that's good. Uh, yeah. I'm always last to promote my own stuff. Oh, I should have said that. So, so did that become, when you went the first time, did, did you have some success come out of that? Um, I don't know if we had a success. And in some respects, I know that for Miles, I think he looked at it. This was a life-changing event. Oh, yeah. Um, I think Miles looked at it as a really positive part of his legacy. Right. I still think he does it today. I think Greg Wells and he do something um, all these years later because we did it for 12 years that I was involved, um, twice a year. Mm. And eventually we had everyone from Carol King to Cher to uh, Libby Newton-John, um, gosh, uh, Peter Frampton, and of course Keith Urban, who I had brought into the uh, management company. Um, his, his publishing was taken up. Oh, Paul Thorne. Oh, yeah. Paul, uh, um, Paul and Billy Maddox, who yeah. has been his co-writer and, and uh, manager. I don't know if he's still doing that now, but co-producer. Uh, but anyway, any rate, I had signed both of those guys to the publishing house. And um, so we went over to France many, many, many times. Yeah, that's cool. It was quite a lot of fun. Um, and, yes, we saw some a lot of success out of it. And eventually, as I mentioned earlier, we had uh, collaborations with um, co-ventures, I should say, really, with like uh, EMI yeah. Publishing and and um, Almo Irving, yeah. which Miles and, and uh, Jerry Moss were very tight because Miles basically made him a, mi- a billionaire when he brought the police over to A&M Records, which is Al Moss and, mm. and um, Herb Alpert. Um, yeah, it was a fun time. Yeah. Amazing was, memories. When, when you're sitting there at 2 o'clock in the morning and this little grotto, little little uh, stone-encased room with a dirt floor, <laughs> and there's an upright piano, and there's a guy named Peter Frampton playing guitar and Carol King on the, the yeah. piano. Yes. And she looks over at you and she says, could you give me some tea? <laughs> I said, yeah, of course I can. I'll just go up to the kitchen and make some. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, how did I get here? Yeah, really? Oh, my goodness. And I found myself in a lot of situations like that, like like Forrest Gump. You know? Yeah, yeah. Suddenly I'm in the White House. But um, it was an amazing time, a lot of fun. And uh, I watched relationships. Well, as a matter of fact, I used to take Gary Burr. Yeah. Uh, when, when I was... Um, running the company, he would be, I made sure he was on, because he was such an astounding writer, he didn't write for us. Right. But, you know, he had carte blanche. Sure. He could do what he wanted. He eventually became Carol's um, band leader mm-hmm. and went out with her for a number of uh, years. Um, uh, gosh, it was those kind of relationships that are priceless. Sure they are. They're they priceless. really are. Um, Livy Newton-John and, and uh, uh, God, I don't know why I'm blanking on names this morning. Beth Nelson, Beth Nelson Chapman. Yeah, um, they became really close. As a matter of fact, they just released a, uh, a collaborative album uh, this past spring. It's really cool. Did um, so during this time, were you still working on your own songs, or were you just delving into this pretty you know, hard? I would. Um, I couldn't. Uh, 
it was such a mixed bag because I, I really enjoyed the um, planning and orchestrating and who to bring to because it was wow. a life changing thing. It became oh, known yeah. as the castle. Originally, we called it Printemps de Troubadours, <laughs> but it, everyone just tagged it the castle. And it became a very sought after invitation. I'm sure it was. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. it's just astounding the people that came. Ted Nugent. I mean, all these people, just the most unexpected people would call and say, I want to go. Yeah. And um, um, so, yes, there were some times when uh, somebody wasn't feeling well um, or down and out at the castle, and I'd fill in because we always had three writers per room, and I would sit in. And, uh, um, and I'm, I knew I missed it. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, eventually, I just re- realized one day, I thought, you know, I'm going to do all this really cool stuff, but I'm not that happy about it. And I realized what I wanted to do was to be back out playing live yeah. and having fun with Be people. an artist. It's the one-on-one again. that we get to have with people. That's what's fun. I, you know, when they started these house concerts, I didn't think I'd care for it much. You don't have your, you can't hide behind the production. No, and you the can't. Stage and the you know, separation between the artist and the, uh, the crowd. I love it. it it's, it's a much more satisfying show to be sitting, even if it's just acoustic. Right. Um, if it's, if it's um, uh, in front of a, a group of people that are just sitting around with you. Yeah. Because you can, you know, you can, you know, for your moment, for whatever, however much you need the attention, you get that. Yeah. But you get to talk directly with people. And it's a listening of, room. I mean, people oh, are, yeah. are hearing the songs. They're not talking over yeah. them. They're not, you're yeah, not being not. a beer salesman, you know. Exactly. You know. Exactly. And so. it's, it is, it's really an honor to be able to do that sort of thing. So, but, um, which is what I did after Miles and I, um, uh, went our separate ways uh, we were together for about 12 13 years um, w- at which point though I also got to bring Paul Thorne into the group um, I co-produced uh, um, Hammer and Nail yeah that's a great one uh, with Greg Wells and uh, Billy Maddox and they had recorded a number of the tracks so when I say co-produce um, a lot of those tracks were fairly well done, but I had to put live drums on, right. and, and I orchestrated all that. Um, but then there were some that, that we cut um, uh, in the studio there in Nashville, which I was proud to be a uh, producer for. And Paul and I have got, uh, we wrote a few songs, and one of them is Better Days Ahead that he yeah. called one afternoon a few years back and said, hey, I'm going to put this song on one of my records, and, you know. That and five bucks will buy a cup of coffee. And I said, I know how it works. <laughs> so it's an honor yeah. to be able to say that I have a song that he uh, recorded. Yeah, I agree. So, um, and then after uh, that amazing run, which is what it was, I, I, I um, formed my own company with some, some uh, investors and opened up Terranova Music and signed some, some writers that I felt were worthy and... Um, carried that about as long as we were just about to, to you know it takes a while to build a publishing yeah, company you've got to build up the catalog you've got to uh, um, even though I knew everybody in town I still had to develop a relationship with that company uh, about that time the, the um, housing market happened and it's surprising to me how much entertainment uh, businesses are propped up by investors with real estate. Um, yeah, <laughs> I watched Music sure. Row become a ghost town right. in six months. Yeah, 
and um, so I was one of those people. And uh, um, so, uh, but what it did do for me, it, it made me just step off the deep end again and just go back to songwriting and performing, which is what I've been doing since. So, 14 years now. Really? Well, yeah, 2008. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, in that period, I've done two albums. I just finished one that I'm very excited about. Uh, it's how I spent my pandemic vacation. Pandemic, yeah. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, I had gone in with Joe Newberry. Yeah. I'm sure you know Joe. Yeah, I know Joe. I'd gone in with him, with Chris Rosser up in Asheville. I know Chris, and, too, uh, yeah. Great great musicians yeah, great is. guys yeah. and uh they were so kind and generous to you know uh, uh joe gave me his time you know i t- brought him up there and you know took care of him while he was up there but uh um we cut 10 sides 10 songs and um i listened to them and they were they were great but it wasn't what i was looking for and i thought ah, I, i've kind of the knee jerk about this i just pulled the trigger and hadn't thought this out because I'd been told by some of the people I was working with in Nashville, oh, it's time for you to get another record out. You better get to it this summer. You know, time's a-wasting. Right. And um, it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction. And um, I listened to the tracks, and I thought, what's not working here? And then I realized it was me. Hmm. I was still doing these records like a singer-songwriter. And there's a difference between somebody who is... um, singing the songs or somebody who is is showing the songs True. showing what they can be and do um but i had 35 years experience of doing it that way because right. that's what i did you yeah want to of course the demo right. because if you sang better than the artist sure right you know, yeah. you know, right i agree it sounds shallow but um so um I, I stepped back i had all the gear at home i had the mics the the uh preamps and the, the uh uh the digital station so i knew i could noodle with it right. and then the pandemic hits and so suddenly that was my job you had you had time to do it um i saw my all my bookings go out the window yeah and we all did four days yeah it was, it was pretty astounding um which was too too bad i mean you know and i just i still it just it hurts to think about the places that won't reopen yeah it does uh, are the people that that you care about who are running those places and yeah. and somebody else is now running them sure you know it's a very difficult time it was a very um, difficult time but you either see it as just a period of time and keep some level of optimism which i did um I wasn't accustomed to piecemealing an album like this so it was a new way to fly so right. to speak i um uh, would start sending files around. And I used to, <laughs> as a producer, I used to just look down my nose at sending files off. Right. That's, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. that's not production. That's just giving them a, you know, sure. made by numbers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but you know what? If you've got a good outline of the song, it's not paint by numbers. You know, the bass player is just playing what he needs to play. For, sure. You, know? you can go back and say, ah, you know, I'd like you to cut loose over here or something like that. Yeah. But otherwise, um, it was an interesting way to create this record. And then I, I, I uh, was introduced prior to, to starting this record to a fella named Thomas Anderson who lives in Durham now. They, he and his wife came out of uh, 
San Diego, and she's a um, um, epidemiologist. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. Um, uh, with a real job. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so she landed in, in the Research Triangle right there in Durham, um, and and I met this fella through my drummer Mike Rosado, and he said, "Oh, you got to meet this guy Thomas Henderson." And uh, as it turns out. He used to write for DreamWorks in L.A. while mm-hmm. I wrote for DreamWorks in Nashville. Ah. At the same time, we didn't know each other, but we knew right. the same players and and uh, the people running the, the show. Um, but here we meet in the spring of 2019, and we started co-writing together in 2019. And then I start this record. You know, he had a little studio at home, but I didn't think anything about you know talking to him about doing anything. Until I started hearing some of his his demos, I was right. like, "Holy cow!" And um, just a brilliant songwriter, musician, uh, great arranger, and and uh, um, and a dear friend. Uh, but we were writing songs during this, and we only wrote two. We wrote a song called "From Where I Stand," which is the title track of this record, and then um, "Throw Caution to the Wind." And both songs, I was like, "Oh my God." I love these. These are amazing. And um, I asked him, invited him to uh, produce those two songs right. and ended up giving him a third song called Bigger Than Dallas. And he just did a brilliant job. We uh, uh, would cut our guitar parts at our little rigs at home. Yeah. And uh, again, you know, I'm getting the same sounds and quality that I would get in any Nashville sure. studio. Yeah. Because I did it my whole life. It's the new, it's the new age. Well, you know, I've got, I have, you know, I've got the, you know, the name, I've got the uh, Ralph Lauren mics, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the Neumanns and the, because yeah. I've been a, a, a mic hound my whole life. Sure. So I had all these great mics and I had a wonderful uh, set of preamps and that's all you need. Yeah, it Good is. interface. And, I agree. And in today's world, yep. that's all they're doing in the studio. Minus True. The, I didn't have the room that they had. Right. But um, I was just cutting guitar and vocals. And then we'd go over to uh, his studio which uh, he had a pretty good-sized studio um, compared to mine, at least. Mine was second-bedroom studio. Oh, yeah, I understand. <laughs> I have one of those, too, yeah. Uh, which I did then change the name to Woodshed Studio because <laughs> um, that's what I was doing. I was just woodshedding. I'd go in, I'd play a guitar part and live with it a little bit and think, you know what, I can do better. And that's the danger. It is, I agree. You can, you can chase your tail doing that. You can do that. But you just have to know when good is good enough. Yeah, you do. And, uh, but I was able to to really create parts that felt like, you know, like the, the bands in the 60s and 70s that worked out their parts. Sure, in the, you in know, the studio. In, well, not even in the studio, but just playing that line. Trail, yeah. you know, they've been playing this song for six months, you know, five yeah. nights a week, whatever, and they just... I got an opportunity to ask Carol King how um, they made those records, like Sweet Baby James yeah. and Tapestry, and she said, "Well, you know, we were all kids just playing together at the Troubadour, you know. Um, so when it came time for James, who I had that relationship with because of our dads, right. um, not that we had a relationship, but that connection. So I was very intrigued. Um, she said, "Well, you know, uh, I had played on um, all of his his." shows at the Troubadour and, and Russ Kunkel was yeah. you know, the drummer, the house drummer and Sklar was the yeah, bass, bass player. player. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know when, when you take that ball of talent um, and roll it into the studio, you had artist, 
playing on other artists' records. True. And that was a turning point for me in my production. And since then, I, I've always uh, brought in um, artists that I, I like for, uh, mainly for background vocals. Sure, yeah, I understand uh, that. But um, you know, the occasional one to play some instruments. Sure, sure. So, um, but that's how we constructed this album that I've got now. This is gonna, it's actually, the street date is gonna be uh, July 29th. Okay. Uh, the first single goes out the in June 24th. And that's gonna be from where I stand. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, it was a great way to make a record. And, and then I, we, we would go out to Nashville to cut drum tracks. And that's right, yeah. Um, but when it came time to mix, I, again, went out to Nashville, and I mixed with uh, uh, my friend Paul Sculton at County Q. I've been playing or doing sessions at County Q for decades. Um, and uh, he's one of the few old schools still around. And, and, uh, and not to mention, he's an amazing drummer. I mean, he's a top session uh, drummer. So, uh, But it's a great studio. It's uh, a little bit like the Millennium Falcon. You know? yeah. It's a little rough here and there, but it flies really well. well. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I mean, there you go. If you're a Star Wars fan. So um, there you have it. That's, you know, so now I have this album ready to go out the shoot, and I'm just chomping at the you got date. You got dates set up, too, to back it up? Mm, no, I'm, I'm really bad about that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to the Netherlands um, middle of June I've got uh, five or six dates there um, and then uh, um, but I got to get busy I've got some a uh, couple of dates in, in the uh, Raleigh Durham Chapel Hill area uh, let's see June June 16th I'm playing at uh, the Blue Note Grill in Durham which is a cool place to play and next morning I fly out to to the Netherlands ah, I have a daughter that's in the Netherlands today oh yeah yeah where is she you know, I'm not sure where she is today there, um, uh, but I saw them on a train. I saw pictures of her on a train. Oh, she's traveling. Uh, yeah, she's, she's traveling. Not, okay, I so, don't know if she was like in school or. No, they're just on a trip. That's cool. That's a good uh, place to be on a trip. Well, they've been in England. I think. I think probably they'll get France out of this trip too. So I. I I'm not certain all the places they're going, but they're having a big time. Oh, yeah. I love traveling like that. But you know what? And you know this. Traveling as a musician, especially abroad, is wonderful. Yeah, it is. Because you, you arrive in a place like, like Holland, the Netherlands, and you're there with a host. True. Who is also a perfect guide. Yeah, they are. guide. Um, but you get to be immersed in the culture there. You do. You're there with this this host who lives there year round, and and um, um, that's what that happened for me with the Netherlands. I was actually at a conference, a music conference, Folk Alliance International, out in Kansas City. Saturday night, two in the morning, early Sunday morning, and <clears throat> I'm crawling off to go to bed because I got to get up in a few hours to grab a flight home. And a friend of mine, Brian Ashley Jones, an amazing guitar player down in Spartanburg over here. Yeah. He says, Wyatt, 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 come over here. you got to meet my friend Clementine. I walk over. <clears throat> and, and it's crazy on those, those conferences, the two in the morning on any given hotel hallway, there's going to be 50 bands playing sure. in the rooms, yeah. the uh, guerrilla showcases. 
and uh, music everywhere. And um, so I walk over, and here's this stunningly beautiful Dutch woman standing there named Clementine, and we talk for about five minutes, and, and I, I tell her, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I'm off to bed, so I get three hours in before I have to go to the airport. And as I'm walking away, I turn back and I said, by the way, I've always wanted to tour in the Netherlands. And she immediately walked over, handed me a card, and she said, stay in touch. And so yeah. three or four days after I got home, I, uh, I sent her an email. And within two months, I was over there playing a tour yeah. for five weeks. Oh, that's great. Oh, my God. This was amazing that she could put that together. But she's uh, um, a very well-respected artist in the Netherlands. So That's too cool. Yeah. That's I a mean, great part about being, you know, the music world is, is you know, you can – develop these relationships that she and her husband and, and uh, family have become very close. Yeah, that's like my, good. My European family. So That's great. I mean, that really is. Yeah. So that's where I am today. I, I do need to get some dates on the books. I need a well, book agent. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, some of that when we get through with this podcast. <laughs> okay. Um, I do appreciate you taking the time to come and do this. Oh, I, I've been looking forward to it. It's a great this, story. So. It's a great story. Um, I wish you just great success with the new record. Thanks. I can't wait to hear it. Great. Well, I, I would uh, play you a couple. Sure, I want you to I'll play, play the uh, title track. And, sure. Um, and I assume that uh, you can add if I give you tracks. I can. Okay. Um, I could send you a, sure. a link to that. Yeah, that's good. This is a, another tune off of the new album from where I stand. It's called Love Says It Best. Um, I wrote it for a dear friend of mine who was in the last stages of uh, being here on this, this plane, if you will. Um, he was dying of cancer, and he was such an extraordinary human. I met him at one of my songwriting retreats and became good friends. He was a wealth manager out of Atlanta and did very well. I'm sure, uh, yeah, yeah. But he had a passion for songwriting, and he was determined he was going to become a good songwriter. But it's just one of these people that um, I, he was so full of curiosity and a very handsome fella and just kind and generous and Chuck McDowell. And um, um, he was doing these writer's nights with Eddie Owen down in uh, Atlanta. I'm sure mm, you know Eddie. I do. What a wonderful fella. And um, so, but I, I look back on the opportunities, and this is one of the things I love about these songwriting retreats, is you can invite these people to get together and spend four or five days mm -hmm. just focusing on songwriting. And they walk out of there with these amazing friendships. Oh, yeah. And I learned this from Chuck. He, uh, he and I never wrote a song. He tried to get me to write a song with him once, and I was right in the middle of a breakup or something. I don't know, but I didn't. I wish I had. Um, I went to his, his memorial service, uh, and um, I, was, I wasn't surprised, but I was pleased as much as anything to see fifteen to 2,000 people at that wow. memorial service. He was that kind of influence. But this song goes out to Chuck, um, and, and uh, it's kind of a conversation of sorts that I'd watched him when there was a bit of an altercation and how he had handled it instead of it reacting he just kind of was very calm about it and diffused the whole thing it was pretty astounding but this is called love says it best
I once asked a friend of mine How he could stay so calm In the face of another's anger He replied with his usual charm He said, I'm not here to judge another To shame them or to be See, when I was just a child, I was taught the fruits of the golden rule. You do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It may sound old-fashioned, but it'll always ring true. Open your heart and let go of the rest. All you have to do is try. Love says it best. A man of faith like no other. an unshakable knowing that we're never alone and the lessons that he taught me are still trying hard to break through I still struggle with the notion I could have that same faith too Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It may sound old fashioned, but it'll always ring true. Open your heart. All you have to do is try Love says it best Love says it best Love says it best Love says it best When a harsh word is spoken promise is broken you begin to wonder what's the use now that's when these words ring loud and true you love one another we're all sisters and brothers we're here to help each other that's what we're meant to do Open your heart Let go of the rest All you have to do is try